Welcome to the Weekly Defence Podcast, the show about defence procurement and military technology. We are brought to you in partnership with our sponsor, NAMO. I'm your host, Helen Haxel, Air Domain Editor here at Shepherd Media, coming to you from a sunny West London. On the show this week, Richard Thomas talks to Gordon Arthur about his observations regarding the various events that he's been attending recently in the Asia-Pacific region. I sit down and talk to Muddy Waters, AOC president, about electronic warfare challenges and collaborative approaches in Europe and beyond to tackle this area. And our sponsor, NAMO, provides this week's Industry Voice segment. But first, our weekly news roundup, and I'm here with Richard Thomas, Editor-in-Chief. Hi, Helen. Our land reporter, Kate Marter. Hi there, Helen. And Jack Richardson, our sea reporter. Hi, Helen. To talk about what's caught their eye this week. Kate, if we could start with you, with the land domain... I believe you're going to be touching on European countries looking to hybrid futures for military vehicles. Yes, so I don't know if uh, maybe a hybrid tank or a low-emission light-protective 4x4 sounds a little bit strange to you, Um, but that was actually the subject of a collaborative research project announced by the European Defence Agency this week. They're looking into this uh, hybrid uh, hybrid. They're looking (laughs) into um, hybrid drivetrains for military purpose. Um, and it's basically a collaborative project between, uh, led actually by the European Defence right. Agency, but um, between several different European countries. So you've got Germany as the lead nation there, and then they're collaborating with Austria, Finland, France, Italy, the Netherlands, uh, Slovenia, and Sweden. Um, noticeably, uh, there's missing? no there's no <laughs> there's no UK on the list, uh, Helen. But um, maybe I think that might be perhaps to do with a. Uh, with a little something to do with Brexit. Oh, perhaps. not the B word already. Uh, I know, Kate. again. <laughs> um, but yeah, so um, the plan there is to basically like lift, um, look into how they might lift uh, commercial technology and use that in military vehicles, um, and also examining the pros and cons of new technology as well, and sort of how that might um, uh, play out as well in military vehicles. Are there any other driving factors, or are they the main kind of? Yep. So in terms of uh, the reasons given by the European Defence Agency, yep. they said that was actually uh, driven by a need to reduce emissions from the tr- uh, from traffic and even um, looking into banning certain types of vehicle engines as well. Right. Well, I guess that makes sense. I mean, that sounds pretty commonplace throughout industry. You are industry and domains as well. I mean, on the on the naval side of things, um, naval operators have for, for, for a number of years been been using hybrid propulsion systems. Some very well, others less well. Let's let's not mention the Type Forty Five and the the, uh, the Royal Navy. That's um, not. Okay, we won't. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, obviously it's it's a, a useful capability that will help reduce costs. But I think key is key is probably ensuring that the system that is produced is is workable, is able to deliver a platform at a given place at a given time. Because an operator doesn't want to have new tech that doesn't work. To the sea desk, Jack, I believe you're going to update us on some underwater vehicle programmes and submarine updates. That's right, Helen. Yeah, there's the UK Ministry of Defence announced a competition yesterday to for a existing underwater unmanned underwater vehicle to be to be uh, modified to experiment on how 
vessels like this could meet UK requirements in future. So this is a £2.5 million programme. That's $3.7 million. And the deadline for sub- for submission is the 11th of June this year. And the MOD lists key roles as anti-submarine warfare, so providing a barrier for submarines underwater, maritime security in the surveillance role and delivering key payloads underwater. I mean, the money that um, you just mentioned there seems like a drop in the ocean compared to what the US is putting forward with its sort of ORCA programmes programs and things like that. So do you really think that the UK... Well, or it's, or it's uh, always the question, is, is the UK actually serious about integrating some kind of XLUV capability? I think this is. I think at this stage, Richard, as you, as you say, considering the amount of money the UK is putting in compared to the US, this is just a... Uh, this is just a demonstration phase to see what's out there in terms of industry and what can be delivered. Because as we know, the US is, US is working on a, a similar thing to free up its expensive nuclear-powered submarines from the dull, dirty and dangerous jobs with things like the uh, Boeing's Echo Voyager and Lockheed Martin's Orca solution. And on the on the surface, we've got a deal between the UK and India to sign to to cooperate on procurement of warships. Details are limited at the moment, but it comes to a time of increased cooperation between the two nations in, this, in the sea domain. With When the Chief of the Indian Navy visited Portsmouth last month, it was suggested that one of the Royal Navy's Type 31 frigates could be based in India to increase presence in the region. And But one of the key, te- key uh, areas of speculation at the moment is that the Queen Elizabeth-class carrier, where this meeting took place, could be the basis for India's INS Vishal, uh, the follow-on aircraft carrier from the INS Vikrans. Yeah, the, the QE design would have to be adapted quite significantly for, for Indian Navy use, wouldn't it? It would, yeah. The Royal Navy, um, as we well know, looked at having a conventional a cutter bar layout with catapults and arrest wires to launch and recover aircraft, which, of course, gives them bigger, uh, bigger capacity and greater range. So, yes, India would have to modify its ships from the current Stobar configuration, particularly if, as, as has been suggested, they want to operate the um, EMAL's electromagnetic system from General Dynamics. Yeah, good luck with that. OK, um, I'm just going to jump in quickly if I can mention a quick uh, story. Thank you. Dive in? I am going to dive in. Submarine news. <laughs> so, I've been on holiday for the past two days, but I've come back and I'm eager to write some stories, and I have written some stories. We've got a, a quick update on the A26 um, programme, which is obviously being. Uh, developed and uh, built by Saab Cockhams. So HMS Scotland, that is, hmm, that's uh, in service or will be back in service with the Royal Swedish Navy's undergoing sea trials, continues its sea trials after completing a modification and upgrade program from Saab. Basically, the Gotland is integrating, as we know, a number of technologies that will be used on the A26s, um, such as AIP, such as optronic mass and things like that. So the success of the Gotland's successful hmm, reintegration into the service um, will be um, a signifier for how well developed the A26s will be. Just quickly on that, Richard, what's an optonometric mast? Optronic? (laughs) Optronic mast is, um, imagine back in the days of Das Boots where you have... Um, a mechanical, I guess, line of sight to the surface. Like a periscope. Like a periscope, exactly. So what you have now, um, the Royal Navy, the US Navy, others are using these kind of systems is you have uh, a mast system which will penetrate the surface of the the water briefly, take a number of different images, different sensors, different videos, and then it can drop down the surface and allow the crew to um, investigate investigate and examine the pictures uh, in depth at their leisure. 
And this is all, this, and there are other capabilities being. Uh, it's going to be fitted into the A26 as well, as we understand it. Yeah, yeah. just uh, quickly, the AIP, the Air Independent Propulsion, um, basically allows these tr- these conventionally powered subs to be under water and operations for a far longer period of time than their nuclear-powered counterparts would be, so a key improvement there. Okay. Helen, I heard, I heard a rumour that you are going to talk about something called Farrah, so please go for it. I know you're delighted to hear more about Farrah, Richard. So cheeky to me. Um, Our air reporter, Tim Martin, has been working tirelessly at the halls of Quad A in Nashville and he's been getting into the meat of the forthcoming US Army future attack... Go on, Richard, help me with this word. I can never say it. Reconnaissance. (laughs) Reconnaissance aircraft programme. So ahead of a first set of initial design review contracts, which are being issued in July, joint venture between AVX Aircraft Company and L3 Technologies revealed a compound coaxial helicopter design proposal for this US Army competition. It's looking to be a single-engine design, complete with a wing to enhance lift for high-speed flight, and will also feature fly-by-wire technology and a set of ducted fans. Now, Tim Martin has also received confirmation whilst in Nashville on the disqualification of MD Helicopter Swift Demonstrator from this competition Um, after its proposal. I like the word disqualification, Helen. Can you tell me any more on that one? I'm not going to divulge any more on this because I think um, this story warrants a good read from our website. So for Tim's story and more from the team today, please visit our website, shepherdmedia.com. Coming up on the podcast, Muddy Waters talks to me about EW Europe. But first, Richard catches up with Gordon Arthur, who's been out and about attending a variety of shows in the Asia-Pacific region. I'm here with Richard Thomas, our editor-in-chief. Now, Richard, I understand you've got a very special offer for our listeners. Yeah, that's right, Helen. Um, as, as, we, as we all know, um, nowadays journalism comes at a price, as, as it should. And much of our original news content is only available to our subscribers, uh, including much of what we talk about on this podcast. But we are offering an exclusive discount to listeners as a small reward for supporting the podcast and using the code PODCAST50, that's uppercase, listeners can get a 50% off a premium news subscription to provide the access to all the news and analysis from the team here. Thanks, Richard. So to take advantage of this offer, head to subscriptions.shepherdmedia.com, sign up for the premium news service and use the discount code CAPSLOCK, PODCAST50 for a half-price annual subscription. Gordon, it's been a while since we last managed to catch up. I believe it was after Avalon. Um, Fortunate enough to be here in Singapore at the Changi Exhibition Centre. We're at the back of the uh, Unmanned Systems Asia event. Um, You've been busy in recent weeks. Uh, What sort of stood out for you in terms of trips or events? Well, last week I was at Millipole in Singapore, but probably the the standout show was Lima in Langkawi in Malaysia, which was the week before that. So there were quite a few interesting things to, to see and hear at that show. Such as what? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a naval guy at heart, so I'm going to lead off there. Anything, anything naval? 
Uh, in a way, yes, there was some naval news, but the, the biggest news was the fact that there was a, a ship that wasn't there that should have been there. And I'm talking about the littoral combat ship, which is a, a collaborative effort by uh, Boosted Heavy Industries Corporation in Malaysia with Nexter um, of France. So they're actually building six of these um, ships. And I was promised two years ago at Lima that one of them would be there this year. And lo and behold, it wasn't. So I spoke to them and, and asked them what was happening with the program. And they were very reluctant to, to give a date of when this first ship uh, should be ready. Um, but it could be next year, or possibly the year after. We're, we're not exactly sure. But one thing we do know is the littoral combat ship program is well behind schedule. There seems to be issues going on here, uh, but not too many are talking about it. Malaysia's quite active in terms of shipbuilding. That's not the only program it's got going on. So is there any other news that we can talk about? Yes, we have the littoral mission ship program. So originally, Malaysia was going to buy four of these ships. Two were to be built in China and two were to be built uh, again by Boosted in Malaysia. But we learned um, in March uh, that two of them are not going to be built in Malaysia anymore. They're actually going to be all to be built in China. So, again, we're not exactly sure the reason why this is so. Uh, some are speculating that it's uh, due to money, so it's cheaper to build all four in China, and that seems to be what's happening. So we learned this from a, a notice on the stock market exchange in Malaysia uh, that construction has actually moved uh, totally to China. I mean, is, is that, could that be perceived negatively for Malaysia's shipbuilding industry, or is it just a case of simply saving money rather than a lack of capability? Well, one never really knows when it comes to Malaysia. Uh, certainly, Boosted has its hands full, hands full trying to get the littoral combat ships done, so perhaps it's a good thing. The, the Chinese will certainly get the ships done quickly and on time. So, Richard, one, one other area that we should mention is the Malaysian Maritime Enforcement Agency, so the MMEA, and they have quite a bit of shipbuilding going on at the moment too. So one class of ships, it's called the New Generation Patrol Craft. So this is a, a, a set of six vessels, 44 metres long, uh, that will enter the, the MMEA. So to date, four have been finished by Destiny Shipbuilding in Malaysia. Uh, three have been commissioned by the MMEA, MMEA and uh, the final two boats will be delivered uh, later this year. The MMEA is also looking for three OPVs. So all of them are under construction uh, at various stages. So the first one should be completed in October 2020, although uh, the the shipbuilder, uh, THHE, did tell me it could be three or four months later than that. So these vessels, uh, endurance for 21 days, 4,500 nautical mile range, uh, these, they're quite large. So these will be particularly important for the MMEA, their largest uh, vessels to, to date. And also of interest, the MMEA is talking about, in the future, obtaining some motherships. So the idea is that they could go to somewhere like uh, East Malaysia if there's a, another um, if there's a security incident, for example, 
and they could operate smaller ribs and uh, smaller boats uh, from these motherships. So it's just an idea at the moment, but interesting nonetheless. How about in the air? Anything, anything flying around? Yeah, I mean, a, a big part of the, the Lima show is the, the aerial display. So there were a number of aircraft um, roaring around the skies of Langkawi two weeks ago. So one of the programs attracting the greatest attention is a, a request for information from the Malaysians for a new light combat aircraft. Now, if you've been following the Malaysian Air Force's woes, you'll know that it's been looking for a, a multi-role combat aircraft for a number of years to replace its MiG-29s and every time we go back to Lima we're always talking about this program but it never moves forward but instead Malaysia seems to be talking about a light combat aircraft now and actually at Lima we had two contenders for this program so one of them was the Tejas from Hindustan Aeronautics Limited in India and the other was the Yak-130 from Russia. So Malaysia issued a, a request for information uh, fairly recently, and apparently they're looking for an initial 12 aircraft, and later on perhaps a, an extra 24 aircraft to equip the Royal Malaysian um, Air Force. Just in closing, we're obviously at an unmanned event here. Anything unmanned at Lima? Yeah, we had another request for information issued by the Malaysians actually last December and the Air Force is looking for a male UAV. Now, I'm a bit sceptical about this. I mean, Malaysia issued basically a 1A4 page RFI uh, looking for information about such a, an aircraft. So how serious are they? Do they have the money available? Uh, those are all questions that remain to be answered. But certainly at Lima, um, it did attract some attention because we had three exhibitors uh, who stood out with potential offers for such a male UAV. We had China with the Winglong 2. We had Turkey with the Anka S. And we also had General Atomics there with a, a Reaper from the U.S. Air Force. I did speak to all three. Um, I asked the Chinese whether they were offering the Winglong 2 to Malaysia and they told me to, to look at their website no information forthcoming from the Chinese I'm afraid um, the Turkish company TAI is offering the, the Anka S and they're also promising all sorts of uh, technology transfers uh, to Malaysia if they went ahead and General Atomics uh, is offering its Reaper and, of course, if you remember, Richard, uh, when we last spoke about Avalon, we know that Australia um, is definitely buying the Reaper, though we don't know which variant yet. Brilliant, Gordon. Thank you very much for your, for your time, as always. Um, I think we'll probably get a chance to catch up in a few weeks' time for Index back here in Singapore. But uh, until then, thanks a lot. Thanks, Richard. See you then. I'm here with Matt Smith, who is our Director of Analysis here at Shepherd Media. Hi, Matt. Hi, Alan. The Plus team and yourself have been working furiously over the past several months on our Shepherd Plus business intelligence service. So for the benefit of our listeners, Matt, could you tell us exactly what is Shepherd Plus? Sure thing, Helen. So Shepherd Plus is a market intelligence tool for the uh, defence and aerospace sector. 
It combines a database of military equipment and news and analysis from Shepard journalists, analysts, and our subject matter experts. It's available through a web portal, and all of our data is fully searchable and can be exported into Excel for further analysis. So the main feature of our, of our tool is, uh, is a database which provides information on who is buying which military equipment. Mm -hmm. Each record contains information like order and delivery numbers, unit costs, uh, key product attributes, as well as a narrative description of, uh, of the system itself. We also link all of the major subsystems like weapons, engines and electronic systems to, to the main record. So there you have it, Shepherd Plus. Thank you, Matt. Thanks, Helen. So if you want to find out more, you can email plus at shepherdmedia.com or contact us through our website. I'm in conversation with Muddy Waters, AOC President. Thanks for joining me, Muddy. Good morning, and I'm uh, really looking forward to our discussion this morning. Me too. We're going to be discussing electronic warfare technologies and their challenges. So to kick us off, Muddy, what could you share with us? What are the main EW challenges that are facing Europe at the current time? Well, from my perspective, uh, the main EW challenge facing Europe is uh, geopolitical, and that's in the form of a resurgent regional threat that everybody is aware of, and that's Russia. So Russia has modernized its offensive and defensive weapon systems. It's got advanced long-range air defense systems, tactical radios, unmanned ISR, signals intelligence, and communications electronic warfare capabilities. And they've also uh, reorganized and retrained their EW forces and embedded their EW units within its larger force. So we've seen a significant use of electronic warfare by the Russians um, to include synchronized signals intelligence, information operations, jamming, and the use of directed energy weapons. So that uh, resurgent regional threat, I think, is number one. Number two, I think uh, another challenge is Europe's ability to maintain its EW industrial base. So like many other nations, um, they've had 25 years of regional peace and really kind of 15 years of focusing on specific threats. So we've been involved with counterterrorism. So we've been working the counter IED. We've been working IR countermeasures for expedi expeditionary operations. And this has kind of left Europe with an unbalanced EW portfolio that uh, I think must quickly catch up to the capabilities of the modern air defense systems and communications networks that they're going to be facing. So this is going to require a broad investment in EW SIGINT technologies, and I'm not sure that uh, Europe's political leaders are, are really aware of this. Uh, the other thing is equipment is not enough. I think Europe must continue to develop multinational concepts of operations, so working together training as a coalition, um, and really what that uh, emphasizes is minimizing barriers to uh, interoperability and compatibility, and that, that goes for all their systems to include SIGINT, communications, and electronic warfare systems. You touched on it a bit there, but which technologies further are presenting themselves as a response to this? Well, I think there's a wide range of uh, EW technologies that are needed to address the anti-access, uh, anti-area denial, the A2AD challenge that Russia poses to Europe's forces. So from an airborne perspective, you've got support jamming, uh, you've got stealth, you've got self-protection. All those are EW solutions that are needed to address the threat posed by Russia's long-range radars and missiles. 
Also, we're, we're in a new era. So offensive cyber capabilities are needed to disrupt the networks. And uh, these networks are critical for linking the air defense nodes together. On the ground, we've got communications jamming. Um, we've got uh, offensive cyber capabilities, and those are needed to disrupt and degrade the communications networks. And then we've also seen an upsurge in uh, UAS systems. So we need to really focus on counter UAS systems that can take the eyes away from the Russian forces and limit the ability to uh, employ their long-range artillery. Um, if we move to the naval side at sea, we've got modern shipboard EW systems that need to be there to enable naval forces to operate in the constrained uh, maritime environments of the Baltic Sea. You touched on focus areas there. I wonder which technologies of the future will we see more of to combat such aggressive EW frontiers? Well, I think that there are uh, three primary future technologies that are going to shape the evolution of electronic warfare. So we've kind of got in the near term, we're looking at uh, multifunction uh, electromagnetic systems that we're going to be needed on a wide range of weapons platforms, both large and small. So these multifunction systems, we've now got uh, uh, ESA radars. So I've got the ability to do uh, multi-beam shaping, multi-beam functionality. I've got smaller systems or smaller antennas. So I'm going to be able to rely on fewer antennas, which are going to help reduce the RF signatures on large complex weapon systems like frigates and aircraft carriers. And on the other end of the spectrum, these multi-function systems uh, can perform radar, data link, and EW functions all maybe concurrently. And that's going to help enable small unmanned platforms to perform Multiple, multiple tasks, uh, networked ISR, SIGINT, support jamming, and other related missions in a dangerous threat environment. So I think a large focus has got to be on uh, developing this multifunction capability uh, specifically for unmanned air systems um, that could be expendable or survivable, but they provide that stand-in capability that we need against these long-range weapon systems. In the midterm, I think you're looking at artificial intelligence and machine learning technologies. They're going to have a tremendous impact on electronic warfare. So you can call it uh, adaptive EW or cognitive EW, whatever you want, but these technologies will uh, essentially be critical to manned and unmanned teaming in the electromagnetic competition between radars, EW, data links, PNT, and, uh, and other things that are out there. In the longer term, I think we're looking at quantum technologies, and those are going to play a significant role in EW systems. You know, we're still at the very beginning of developing quantum computing, and we're just figuring out how we can utilize quantum concepts for radars and communication systems. But I'm confident that uh, EW needs to leverage quantum technology as well as machine learning in ways that we are just beginning to understand to really become competitive. And I think the, the reason behind that is data becomes so critical and we've got so much data that's feeding into our systems. We've got to be able to determine what data is important to sort that data, to give only required data to the commander to help his decision-making process and to be able to transmit that data, the required data between systems very, very rapidly and very accurately. 
Maddie, thanks for that. What collaborations, though, are we seeing between nations, militaries and organisations within the European region particularly? Well, I think from my perspective in Europe, there's intense collaboration across the board in about every aspect of life, right? So that includes industry, military, security, science, technology. Um, You take uh, the large um, Hadron Collider in Geneva as one example, you know. In military and security terms, I think NATO is a cornerstone. NATO was founded in uh, 1949 with 12 members. It's grown today. It's got an alliance of 29 member states. Two of those are the United States and Canada and North America. You've got one, you know, is in Eurasia. That's Turkey. And the remainder are all European countries. So I think the, uh, the byline kind of for NATO is the most important players are the member countries themselves. So NATO becomes, I, I think, a critical, again, cornerstone for the, uh, the collaboration between nations on the military front. Um, of course, you know, we're talking kind of about the uh, 2019 Stockholm AOC event. So that's in Sweden, and Sweden isn't in NATO. But nonetheless, NATO and Sweden actively cooperate in peace and security operations. They've developed practical cooperations in many other areas as well. And I think an important priority is to develop interoperability that I talked about before. So you've got interoperability capabilities and you've got to maintain the ability of other countries like Sweden um, to work with those of NATO and other partner countries in multinational peace and support operations. So this applies to other countries like Finland and Norway and other countries in the region. I think there are many organizations across the region that, that have cutting-edge technologies, and, uh, you know, they're working together, and, and they're working together not just for, you know, what we do necessarily in the military, but you're looking at, uh, you know, how do you tackle crime? How do you defeat or fight terrorism? How do you counter cyber attacks? And, and probably one of the, the biggest difficulties is sharing intelligence and resources So being able to share intelligence data between countries. And the other thing that we really haven't focused on is the spectrum. And as far as how do we share spectrum resources? How do we observe the spectrum together? And how do we pass that spectrum, if you will, or that electromagnetic environment intelligence between countries? Um, I think the other thing is NATO isn't the only vital organization in the region. So you've got another example is the European Union. You know, that's a unique economic and political union between 28 countries uh, that uh, covers most of the continent. And I think the uh, European Union is of major importance, and it also kind of has its own military capabilities and organization. Do you think then on that note, is a collective approach the best way forward? Uh, absolutely. I think it's the really the only way forward. And, you know, the AOC as an organization is primarily focused on a collective approach. Uh, the AOC, we also put a great, you know, a great deal of uh, rigor and importance on education. And uh, we've achieved, I think, some impressive results in reaching young people to encourage them um, to uh, enter, you know, the fields of science, technology, engineering and math. And as an example, we stood up a significant STEM program in the Washington, D.C. area during our uh, annual symposium, but we're really encouraging our chapters that are around the globe to develop their STEM programs because I think these young people 
you know, they're a significant asset and uh, they will be the future um, as far as electronic warfare goes. And we've seen good efforts from some of our chapters, uh, like Singapore, as an example. I think another sign of the collective, uh, collective approach is the uh, AOC really follows and advocates for our chapters, which I mentioned before. So we've got 67 chapters. Many of them are outside the United States, and really they're the foundation and the heartbeat of this organization. We've got uh, 2,500 members, roughly, out of a total of about 13,000 that are members of non-U.S. chapters and non-U.S. memberships are really our fastest-growing sector. So we're seeing a, a large growth in the, uh, the, the European region. Um, the Viking Roost um, in Sweden is hosting EW Stockholm, and there's going to be other uh, AOC volunteers there from Europe and South Africa trying to help run that event. That's perfect. Thank you, Muddy. Well, there you have it. We've had a discussion about interoperability, NATO's role, multinational opportunities, and some of the technologies that are being sought to combat the challenges presented by Russia and other actors. So all that's left to say is thank you. Thank you. So welcome to this week's Industry Voice. Uh, this is the part of the show that's brought to you in partnership with Nemo. I'm Tony Skinner, VP of Content here at Shepherd Media. And I'm joined once again by Andre Lant, who's the SVP of Communications for Nemo. Hi, Tony. So on the agenda today is cybersecurity, which is obviously it's a, a huge issue that's sort of come to the fore, well, over, over the last several years. Um, businesses are are now much more vulnerable to cyber attack. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that awareness is is much more pervasive sort of throughout society. But, I mean, in Norway, that was highlighted recently by an attack on Norsk Hydro, mm-hmm. um, which I know, you know, you're willing to, you're wanting to touch on this week, um, you know, and what that attack means and what some of the wider implications are for the aerospace and defence sector. Yes, indeed. Uh, the reason why I want to bring that up is that uh, now it's been almost a month since... Uh, the attack took place, and we're starting to see a little bit, get a little bit more detail on what actually happened. So, just for background, on the 18th of March, uh, Noskydro, which is a company of like 35,000 employees, and uh, they're present in about 50 countries around the world, a major manufacturing company, big provider of uh, energy and uh, aluminum and uh, cross industries, uh, they realized that their systems were starting to lock up. And by morning here in Norway on the 19th, they realized that they were suffering a major cyber attack. And what's come out later now, about a month later, is, well, it quickly became clear that there was a, one of the ransomware viruses that had come in. But they now realized that it was a very targeted attack, uh, that it was using their Active Directory, which is kind of the central registry that tells uh, the systems whether or not they accept the user when it logs into various uh, business applications, everything from payroll to uh, timekeeping to uh, whatever, uh, that system had been infected and was being used to spread it across their uh, network. And we're talking millions in damages. And even a month later, they're not fully up to uh, speed on on all their systems. So, I mean, what what can we take away from it? I mean, there must be concerns there um, for what it means for, you know, for your organization the prospect of being locked out of your own data is pretty terrifying. Um, I mean, for any any organisation, but particularly if you're talking about an aerospace defence, potential national security kind mm-hmm. of context. 
Yeah, and I think this is something that on the aerospace and defense industry, I'm not quite sure we're good enough at looking at all the different aspects of cybersecurity because we're so, we're often so focused on uh, keeping our secrets secret. So keeping our customer data uh, confidential, making sure that no third parties get access to that. And that to us, that defines cybersecurity. But in the last couple of years, we've been looking a lot more at this uh, in NAMO as well. And uh, one of the uh, experts we brought in to give us a bit more insight on it, he highlighted the fact that we have to understand there are three aspects really of uh, cybersecurity. One is denying access to third parties, to outsiders, keeping your secret secret. That, mm-hmm. that part, I think everybody understands that. But you also have to appreciate that cybersecurity is also about making sure that we can get access to it when we want to. So securing that we have access all the time. I mean, that's what happened in North Skydor. They couldn't. They didn't have access anymore. And the third thing is the integrity of the data. So we can be sure that no one has somehow messed with it or make sure that no one has altered vital uh, parts of our our data so that we're not we can be sure that we're actually delivering what we said we would so our manufacturing systems haven't mm-hmm. been impacted that our uh, our specifications everything hasn't been impacted that we, that we, we the data we have can be trusted i'm not sure we're good enough at thinking about all these three aspects uh which i think mm-hmm. this crisis that hydro expi- experienced uh, really uh, underlined i mean there is sort of an underlying irony, I guess, in all this, and that a lot of various space defence companies are positioning themselves on the cybersecurity front mm-hmm. to help governments, you know, secure their own their networks and to be, you know, some of the sort of main players in, in providing these solutions. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the, the wider context, you know, a lot of uh, companies are slow to, you know, to stay ahead of the the curve, you know, the, the upgrade curve. Mm-hmm. You know, for, I mean, various reasons means that you, that you're a little bit restricted in terms of, you know, how companies network, how you use the clouds, um, you know, what um, versions perhaps of the operating system mm-hmm. you're using. Yeah. Um, if, if you're restricted to buy, if there are regulations and rules in terms of how you deal with governments and how you kind of, you know, how you're able to use their information. Exactly. And I think that actually, in some respects, could make uh, the aerospace defense industry more vulnerable because we're not allowed to pursue the latest solutions. I mean, if you look at uh, the IT world right now and in terms of uh, corporate IT, uh, the major providers are all pushing their customers towards using cloud services. So everything's going to be cloud first and all everything's going to live there and all the services, all the software, all the data is going to live there. And in, in one sense, that was what helped Noskydro get through the attack is that they had some of their uh, central uh, systems already in the cloud. So they weren't hit by uh, their servers being taken down in the same degree. Mm-hmm. Uh, the issue we have in the airspace and defense is that due to export control regulations, there is a significant limitation on how much data or what kind of data we can move into the cloud and how much we can rely on that, because the cloud doesn't respect national borders, whereas the regulations that uh, covers aerospace and defense quite often requires us to do that. Uh, Our information, our technical data, uh, customer data, all that is expected to be uh, differentiated by national borders, by countries, but the information only saved in such and such countries and stored here and accessed from there. And that means that I think we're going to be a little bit slower on the uptake here. And that is an issue for us when all the different 
service providers are pushing companies towards the cloud in every respect. So we have this added challenge there, partly because because of regulation, because who we are, and that's something we have to deal with. Well, I guess one thing we do know is that, uh, yeah, it's, a, it's an issue that's not going to go away. Um, any, any, not at all. You know, it's clear that any future any future conflict between any, you know the main main powers, there's going to be an element of cyber attack. Um, yep. And a lot of that is going to be to confuse and to stabilize. Uh, national infrastructure and and you know and corporations and exactly. kind of uh, disrupt everyday life. So um, certainly one that we'll continue to to monitor and I'm sure there'll be sort of lots to talk about in the future. I really hope so. Thanks for your time, Andrew. I appreciate it. Thank you. This episode of Shepherd's Weekly Defence Podcast was brought to you by our sponsor Namo. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please head over to shepherdmedia.com to access all our news stories and subscriber content. We'd love to hear what you thought of the podcast, so please do subscribe, rate and give a review on iTunes or other podcasting platforms. Thanks for listening. Don't put that as the Easter egg.